there's kids that are going to get their masters in teaching <laughs> don't really understand how much money they can make and and i think in certain industries in this world it's fairly recession proof you know we're dealing with capital funds that are pretty hard to access once they're allocated and we're dealing with a real need and labor is just a labor is just really challenging i, I don't think anyone in our industry is I think everybody in our industry has dealt with with uh, shortages and trying to find people and what could be done if they had enough people. We have a huge gap from the age of 13 to the age of 18 where no young men or women are being trained. There's no vocational schools anymore. There's no way to get them educated to understand. You know, I think there's people that go to school because they think I was probably one of them. I, I shouldn't have gone to college. It wasn't <laughs> meaningful. Some people shouldn't own a house. Some people shouldn't have a credit card. Some people shouldn't go to college. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Mike, welcome to the show. Good to be here, man. Thank you uh, for agreeing to do this. We have a mutual friend, Alex Reardon, who will be listening to this, who continues to introduce me to awesome folks. And so glad we connected. We connected because you're running a really interesting business, Vortex Companies. You're down in Houston. But before we kind of get into that and all that is trenchless technology, where'd you come from and how does one find themselves getting into the trenchless technology business? On my wall, I have a, a picture of my my great-grandfather, Paul Volano, who laid a water main and laying a water main in, in 1925 in upstate New York, where I was from, where my family came here. They... The Volano side of the family was very involved in civil infrastructure, water, sewer, when my great-grandfather and he had two kids, Anthony and John, they both went to World War II. One went to Europe, one went to the Pacific, and they both came back and started Volano Brothers Contracting, which was then turned into Anjo Anjo Construction. And they also had a big supply business and a trench safety business that that they built over time. So... My earliest memories were working for my family, were being in being in infrastructure and being being in, around excavators, and the opposite of what I'm doing now, which is trenches technology. So, I, Bolano Brothers was the supply arm. It was around for 70 years. It was acquired by a by a plumbing plumbing wholesale company in upstate New York, and it was my my first job was was working for Bolano Brothers, being around this industry. I think my, my father said, go to college and get out of upstate New York and learn something that's that's different. We didn't have a lot of college grads in our family. And then I actually left college early to go back and help start a yard in Boston and grew up around entrepreneurs, a family of entrepreneurs, all all focused on this space. And when I left the family business to go do something on my own, Trenchless was where was where I landed. My, my family had supplied pipe and other things to trenchless contractors. So I had a good, a good footing, but in terms of involved in a lot of businesses, different businesses, sit on some boards and invest and mentor people that were in my spot, you know, seven, eight years ago, I've dedicated my whole life to this, to this industry. That's awesome. All right. So you, you leave working with your family. You said you were going to go off and do your own opportunity. 
I want to talk about the opportunity, but let's just kind of define, I think, what does trenchless mean to you? So for somebody that's never heard of this, what does the trenchless industry actually mean and entail? Yeah. So in 1976, the Ohio River in Cleveland burst into flames and the EPA initiated something called the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act was was meant to eliminate watershed and tier one outfalls and figure out ways to prevent water treatment plants and sewer systems from dumping into and, and really it became a mandated legal action by the federal government to go around and get municipalities to fix their sewer systems. So for years they had this the federal government could go in and sue the city of Dallas. Well they just sued the city of Houston and said and filed a consent decree a consent order that said they had to, they have to spend so much money to fix their system. And then the city comes back and it goes to a federal judge and they negotiate this, they negotiate this, what eventually becomes a consent decree. And the consent decree says you have to fix your system. You have to pay for it. You, you know, you can get some grant money or raise some bonds and do that kind of thing, but you have to spend, we think it's going to cost $8 billion. The city says it's going to spend two. And then the federal judge says it's going to spend, it's going to, it's five billion dollars to get into compliance. As a result of that, that none of that, not, a lot of that work didn't happen for years because there weren't low, you know, there weren't enough low-cost alternatives to really do it. And Situform was a company that, out of the UK that invented a product called Insituform, and it was a cured-in-place liner. There were other technologies like grouting and slip lining, but cured-in-place is really a trenchless technology that has taken our industry from a small one-off to a the city of Houston does 80% of their rehabilitation. Their, the, foot, the footage of rehabilitation that they do in a year is done through, through trenches technologies. So trenches technologies mean that you're going in without excavating. And some trenchless products, are, are they aren't trench-free. They are trenchless. You actually have to do some excavations to insert your pipe or pull your pipe in, like pipe bursting or slip lining. Here in place or pipe bursting or slip lining or coatings, are rehabilitating or renewing that asset. And cured in place lining has been around for now since the 70s, and it's starting to earn 100-year design lives. It used to be looked at as a rehabilitation method, like angioplasty in a heart. This is actually, you're actually renewing and creating a long-term asset. You know, we, we, we line roof stacks of vertical structures, buildings. We do 16, we just finished a 16-foot diameter tunnel in Michigan, there's really no end to, to and, and the opportunity to save environmentally is, is huge. And, and in terms of you know, disrupting an asset or disrupting a neighborhood or a thoroughfare, when we're in your neighborhood, it means it means we're going to be in and out. And trenchless, trenchless technology is really in terms of how a city or an engineer decides how they're going to fix a pipe. It's become a first a first option in a lot of places. So I understand this, this, the whole world has been building plumbing systems and piping systems for centuries now. I'm going to ask you a question about how old is really old, but you're basically going in saying, look, there's all this stuff already in place rather than go rip it all out and dig the ground out or tear buildings apart. We have tools and processes and products that can go inside of the current pipe and almost create a new pipe within a pipe. Fair? Yeah. So... Exactly. So using you cured in place is, is one method where you take a, a felt liner, you impregnate it with resin, and then you turn that liner inside out, inside of the pipe like a sock. And that re, and that is then cured with either through a thermocure, which is hot water or air, or cured through UV technology. And it, as it expands and bonds to the hose pipe, as you add the temperature to it, it becomes cured in place and it becomes a pipe inside of that pipe. But everything we do, there has to be a pipe. There has to be an existing manhole. There has to be a structure for us to do what we do. We're not putting new pipe in the ground like directional drilling, which is technically in a lot of ways trenchless. It's just that's not something that's not something we do. All of our processes, we have to have an existing asset. And in this country and in most of the, a lot of the, you know, the, the world rebuilt itself in the 1950s and then there's a lot there's a lot to fix still a lot to fix as most of you are most of your customers government contractors or a lot of them 
like a private developer that might go into an old building and they're redoing it? Or what's the breakout between kind of public customers to private customers? You know, the, the mandates I mentioned before with the Clean, Clean Water Act and these lawsuits have created a huge amount of demand at the, in the municipal space. And this business has really cut its teeth, has really cut its teeth working for, for cities and, and in places that have, that have old infrastructure. We do a lot of work for refineries and breweries and private, the private side is real. The private developer side is really a big emerging market for us. We have property managers, a lot of the big engineering firms like AECOM and see if they're, they're managing facilities. We'll go in and do roof stacks for them or sell product to our customers to do, to do that kind of work. But yeah, it's, it's really, it's really focused on 80, 5% of our businesses is in municipal space. I'm going to try and ask this the right way, but like, how old is some of this stuff and, and how have things changed over time? So I'd imagine if you're going into something, there's probably plumbing systems around that were done in the late 1800s, early 1900s that we're still using today. And then maybe paint a picture like if you were building a new building today, how much things have changed in the way we design these plumbing systems so that you know, a listener that's never thought about this could go, man, what's underneath the ground and what we can't see is it's amazing that we still use it today. Yeah. So a big, a big part of, you know, it, when you, especially, especially jurisdictionally, you know, or, or geographically, I should say, like in a place like Boston, we, we lined a pipe in front of Mass General that was a brick sewer that I think was hand laid in the early 1900s. And when you went into this, when you went into this pipe, it looked, it was a, I mean, it was a work of art. It was, you know, there's a, I some Italian brick mason or Irish brick mason, you know, a hundred years ago that just was building. I mean, it was, it, the condition was amazing. The things, the things that were gone in it were a natural process of sewer corrosion, eating away concrete. So we went in and lined that pipe. And over time, you could see water mains that were put in the ground that they ran right through the pipe. We had to line around and try to fix you know, in older systems, it's it's chaos. In some newer systems, like like in pla- in places in the southeast or here, they just they've experienced such massive population growth that they have to increase the treatment side of their plan and re- rehabilitate the way they collect all their sewer. So, what you're doing in those situations is you're basically sealing the pipe and keeping it and keeping the flow of material to get to that treatment process. Or in some cases. It's a combination where open cut is doing traditional open cut construction to increase the size of that pipe is the only is the only uh, or building tunnels or doing things to, to help support that. But stabilizing your system in that case could be the function of using older pipe technology pipe technology that didn't work in some places. There's a lot of clay pipe in this country. There's a lot of AC pipe. There's a lot of which is asbestos concrete. And most of the water mains in in the northern part of this country are AC water mains, which is kind of crazy. But when we go in and rehabilitate, it, it's it, it could be a combination of both. Up north, especially especially in older north, northern cities, they had combined systems, and combined systems means that storm and sewer are converging in larger pipes, and and they've spent a lot of time trying to separate those to try to change the way that these systems operate in places like Boston, and they've had. They call them CSO, combined system overflows. They they put together large projects to try to to try to change those dynamics. But the configuration, the figure, most of most of the changes that we're seeing are about trying to anticipate capacity. And what you know, I think when you think about highways, it's if you've been to Austin, you know that that highway was not built. I thirty five was not built with the expectation that Austin was going to be one of the fastest growing places in the world. And the same thing goes for its sewer system. And it's over time, the population can't handle cars. The, the, the system underground probably isn't going to be able to handle what it's getting, it's, it's being dealt with. So, And in a situation like Austin, the size is the size, right? So is there anything trenchless can do in, in a situation like Austin where the population is growing so much? Or is that where you actually do need to dig a trench and put a new pipe in the ground? Yeah, so in Austin, they, there's some really cool stuff happening in our industry. Uh, there's a, a, a big customer of ours just picked up a really large tunneling project up there, one of the bigger tunneling jobs I think that is that that have bid this year. And what they're what they're doing is something we don't do, but they're 
they're just tunneling with big shafts going under the city instead of going through, you know, the way that something would be built initially. They're, they're essentially tunneling underneath everything to create more space or uh, to create a huge utility instead of going back. And then that, the conversion, they'll, they'll relocate a bunch of utilities to flow into that tunnel. But that's a, in a place like Austin, there's no, there's no other way to do it. Even if they wanted to dig, if they wanted to dig, they would, they would have to relocate a million people. So they have to get creative and they have to understand that there are ways out there that are risky. I mean, that, that project is a, there's no, there's only a few companies in the world that could do that job, but that's how a lot of great things are created, right? You know, by having a significant problem that, and, and Boston's got a lot of rock. That's going to be, that, that's going to be a very cool project and it's going to save people. People see a lot of money being spent on a capital project like that. It's done to, was done in a way that created, was a huge amount of planning and a huge amount of research and finding the right technology to eliminate, to eliminate some, you know, to improve a lot of lives. Yeah, I'd be, I don't think a lot of people back in the 50s really thought about how big these cities could get and how big the homes that we would build would get and the amount of resources we would use. I mean, just the average footprint of the, Amer of the average person is so much greater. People have pools, six showers, a jacuzzi, all these six bathrooms. It's just a lot more stuff being used. Yeah. Yeah, you look at the big dig. I think that highway was designed to carry like 60,000 people a day or something. It's just millions of people in Boston. So put it underground. My entire drive to Austin is predicated around when I'm going to hit 35. I mean, there's no other thing to think about. It's, it's hell if you miss it. That's what people say they're going to fly to Austin. I'm like, well, you're going to hit the worst part of traffic. <laughs> All right. I guess we can kind of, this will blend, but is are there geographic, if we just stick to America, are there areas in the country where your business does better because of climate, topography, anything like that? Or is it kind of evenly distributed no matter where you are? So we have a product and a service business. And we operate them pretty. We operate. We operate them separately. Vortex products and Vortex services both both operate a little differently. Services, obviously, you know, we said we're sending crews out to perform a lot of trenchless work in in certain geographies. We have loca service locations in the Northwest, in Colorado, Texas, mainly Houston and Dallas, the Southeast, in Georgia and Florida, and in South Carolina. And then uh, we have a location in New Jersey and Maine. And then we have another technology, which is a large diameter technology that those got that those crews do work all over all over the US. We typically stay closer to our hubs on the service side. On the product side, we, we sell product all over the all over the world, you name it. We have licensees and for several technologies we sell product in Australia, Asia. We have a product office in, in an office in Munich where we sell all of our products and we own a service business in Hanover, Germany that does a lot of the things that we sell and, and looking to expand, expand in Europe now. And then the business really started organically by finding the right, right kind of combination of products and services. Some we used our service business as a test kitchen to go out and install and try new things in the field with geopolymers and other products. And on the service side, we started as a bypass company in a lot of different ways to, to get and, and partnered with. I would have a an old you know guy that I worked with in this industry would come to me and say, "Hey, I want to. I'm interested in doing something in the pipe bursting industry or something in sewer robotics." And we would figure out a way to you know give them some skin in the game, and we would you know and we would operate it and built you know sort of a. And then once we once we built some of these businesses organically, we realized we had an opportunity to go out and acquire some businesses, and and so I think I took that question in a different direction. But we ge geographically, how we 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 don't really look at we look at opportunity. We're on the product side, we sell all over the all over the anywhere you can get we can get a product, we'll sell it. On the service side, we're really focused on areas that we. We have a hub and have a base, and if there are some areas where they're going to pay us to go there, they'll pay us to go to the moon to line a pipe. We'll go there. But 
But is there anything that has to do with like weather, climate, topography, soil that would say because of these type of climates or these type of geographical regions, there's a lot more plumbing infrastructure that needs to be fixed, say, like in the northeast versus like a Texas? Or is that kind of not something that really matters? I think soil conditions and 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 layout it, it, density is obviously population density is going to mean there's more sewer or water. We you know there, there's also places like Houston and in the southeast that are you know the sewers aren't quite as deep and pipe bursting is a better technology to support in those parts of the world. You know, population density is is the age of infrastructure is important. A lot of our technology we can install. We can install in colder weather. You know, we don't have in in the Northeast and colder climates that you actually you know they have a moratorium on a, paving roads. So you know, there's there's certain things you can't do with traditional remove and replace or open cut. So yeah, de- population density, soil conditions they do they do play a factor in what we do or what we sell in those markets. All right, I want to talk about how you built this. We kind of laid the groundwork for kind of what you're doing. I think it's just really cool, you know, how you built this. So Vortex is a combination of lots of companies. Did you start by buying a business or kind of what is, how did it kind of start from a pure building a business standpoint? So when I left my, I left my family business, which was, you know, an incredible experience being around all of my, you know, there was Bolano brothers was, was three brothers on my father's side and two brothers on my, on my grandfather's side and two on my great uncle's side. They were all entrepreneurs, all involved in different stuff and learned, learned a ton from them, but definitely, definitely wanted to try to do something on my own. And I, I had a short stop at a company called IPR, which was owned by a private equity group and learned a lot about learned a lot about the business there and then left to left to start something. I knew that part of the reason I left the family business was I didn't want a boss again. And when I went to IPR, I learned that I wanted to do something on my own. And I had a lot of people that it was a different kind of different kind of like I I had at at first, it's like, well, I want to be in, well, it's not really about being in charge. It's about doing something that you believe in and, and putting a platform together that I, you know, that I thought, was the right kind of approach to this industry. So when I left, I started a, a bypass business and then really over time, you know, having, having seen the way my family built their business and, and having developed all these relationships over time with, with end users and engineers and contractors and suppliers realized that I had built up a pretty good network of people and, some of those guys were looking for opportunities like I was just, they, they wanted to, you know, they had a product or they had a business that, that, that made sense. And, and over time we started with, with the bypass company, then, you know, started looking at different technologies from Europe because most of our infrastructure technology comes from Scandinavia and from, from Germanic countries and developed Europe and that kind of stuff. Uh, took on some, so I, I woke up one day and had some products and had a service business and realized that it was time, you know, maybe to start thinking about doing a couple of acquisitions. So we acquired a coatings business called Quadex. Then we acquired a small company out in Colorado. Then we built QLS, which was Quadex Lining Systems organically to apply products that Quadex, uh, that Quadex manufactured. And I, not trying to confuse you. It was, it was, we did, we did this really fast. And then one day in 2000. Stop for two seconds and keep going. But, but when did this all start? And then even to where you are right now in the story, like how how many span of years are we talking about? We're talking about like 14 to 15. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. For some people, this is a lifetime. This isn't a one year deal. So you were doing about a business a month. So in 15, we woke up and had a said hey we got to get everybody together we need to consolidate our sales approach and we need to we need to figure out how we're going to take this thing to market and what we're doing is we've acquired these businesses they had really good operational people they had 
really good technical people. And in some cases they had salespeople and we need to focus the salespeople on selling. We need to focus the technical people on supporting them and then the operations people, however they need to support A and B. So is that through going out and teaching someone how to use a cutter? Is that through designing a bypass? Is that through designing a liner or however? So at that point we were, it was, I think it was like 4.30 in the morning in our conference room. It was in the middle of a busy week. We met to say, hey, what, you know, what are we going to talk about at this sales meeting we have? And, you know, we know, you know, we're working like a hundred hours a week. We sat in my office, which at that point was a two, we were renting two rooms from a engineering company that was a mentor and a great guy in Houston. And I said, uh, you know, we got to name, we got to like come up with a, with an outward facing sales organization. And then we're going to, these are all going to become brands behind it. And we're not ready to consolidate everything at the time. So Vortex infrastructure products was created at that meeting. And that was how we were going to sell to the market. So Vortex was going to become a solutions platform that when Somebody came, we interfaced with an engineer, we would present the platform. And for the, for the sake of that meeting, they wanted to talk about fixing a, a large pipe or a small or a, a service lateral or bypass. And then the salesperson would be able to pull, if it was a technical meeting, they would pull that technical resource out of the business. We called them product managers. And if the salesperson had a lead where somebody wanted us to come out and do the work, they would pull the operations person and we would go and attack those opportunities. So Vortex infrastructure became like everyone's journey. We had a couple of couple of partners we got rid of and a couple of we consolidated consolidated our business. And in 2016 we Vortex became Vortex Holdings, which was we consolidated all of the ownership together into one holding company because we had all these we looked at the cap table and we looked at the businesses we had and we said shit we have nine different entities that we need to roll into one and we rolled so we when we consolidated them everyone at that point had started this is a year later had started to identify us as vortex so vortex holdings and then about a year later we had a couple of really you know we started a uh, at that point we were really building our business organically we had done a couple of small deals and at that point we started talking to our bank and they were like, you know, at some point you're going to have to, you're going to have to bring a partner on if you want to do, I know what your plan looks like. And, you know, we're not going to let you, we're probably not going to borrow, you know, none of us had trust funds in the beginning when we had, you know, there were times where I think I financed 12 F-150s personally. There's 18 Ford letters come into my house. My wife's like, what, what is going on? I mean, she's a huge part of my story. You know, that, that, that becomes like a pretty, you know, and then, and then we have jobs that we're looking at going, you know, I can do this job for you, but can you pay me early? Or we had one customer that paid us for a couple million dollars of material early and that cash flowed the business for like 90 days. You know, it was, it was just, there were just things, things as you go back and you look at the story, you're like, man, I can't believe I lived flew that close to the sun those things worked and we had the risk profile to handle it. And there were times where we had to put money in the, you know, in the account to, to make payroll and, and we plowed forward in the business. And then back to that moment. So the bank, you know, I, and I didn't think I wanted to take on a partner, but you know, we found the right one platform partners here in Houston, their perpetual fund and invest in everything and have been great partners to us. And so just because we like to do things painfully, when we close, they closed on. When we when they invested in us, we also simultaneously closed on our first large acquisition, Backvision, out of Tampa, and closed our credit agreement in the same day. The day, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, that was a fun day. So yeah, and and, and from there we just we put our heads down and during acquired businesses every year we got a few. We'll do this year a steady diet of products and and services and. You know, I think there, I think we bought four companies during COVID, which was, you know, we kind of took the opposite approach of the rest of the world. But it's been a wild, wild ride. I forgot some things in between. I'm going to ask you a, a lot of questions. All right. So you started with the business and then you kind of 
maybe organically started a few, you bought a few, but give me a sense, like how big of a company were you kind of by the end of 2016 when you were nearing this desire to take on private equity? How, like how much revenue across everything? 30 to 40. And was this, was this a hodgepodge of friends and family investors company, like owner financing when you'd buy businesses? Like how did you kind of finance your way to 40 million in revenue? No, we, we had, it was a combination of having some really good customers that took care of us on the cash on the working capital side. And we went and we had a banking relationship with regions bank. They did a great job for us. We, there are first couple of deals actually buying out our old partner, which was the first deal we did with them, and then going out and buying our first couple of first couple of businesses and and giving us a little bit of breathing room with our first line of credit to help us to help us build this thing. All right. Well, I think your story of well, one one lesson I just learned is you don't actually need to raise money if you can get customers to prepay multi million dollar invoices ahead of time. You actually. That was unplanned. That was just, you know, it's just direction and movement. <laughs> yeah, your story of financing 12 Ford trucks. I used to have this line on Grasshopper that when you called it, it would be like, for one, press accounting. For two, press acquisitions. For three, press HR. It was a one-person company and every line routed towards me. But, you know, you got to play the game to build a company. And it's, there's a lot of things that happen that they don't teach you in business school. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would do it exactly the same, but it worked. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to be willing to, to be an entrepreneur. You have to, you have to be willing to take risks that a lot of people won't. It's not, that's why when you, when you hear about businesses failing, you know, if you've been through it, you're like, man, it's not, you're always, you're always a couple of steps away from something that doesn't that could really that could really affect your future. It's definitely not 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 easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. I think. My buddy Brent says that small business is just like loosely functioning disasters, and some people can keep it together long enough to get to the other side. But I've really never met a small business owner that described anything remotely different from that. Yeah, that is that's a great way to put it. Okay, so. Is it fair to say that when you're buying these businesses, you're not letting each business kind of operate with its own kind of culture and its own people and its own brand name? Everything you buy eventually rolls up under the Vortex brand, or do you operate as a hold co where everything can operate separately from each other? No, we we believe in integration. We also believe that the customer we also believe in that the customer interface is important. So you know, there's a lot of companies out there, large platform companies that are, will go in and say, oh, you know, in the first year, your the font of your logo changes. In year two, you become a so-and-so company. And then by year three, we tend to go in and we want the, we want to create enough culture and enough engagement in the business for them to make that decision. I can give you a couple of quick examples, like, like Backvision in the Southeast, you know, the owner of that business came to me or the seller and, and he now runs our services group. He's president of our services group. Wes is, is a, a great friend and you know one of the first large acquisitions we did right after we brought Platform on. And he's like, I hate my I hate the name. Backvision is a terrible name. I want to be Vortex today. I'm like, all right, well, you know, we gotta work through the customer stuff. That that was different. You know, in in Maine, we bought a company called Ted Berry that was a a multi-generation business and Matt Timberlake is is actually one of our one of our culture leaders at this business and helped develop our help develop our culture which is which is uh, I can I can tell you about in a moment but you know he was one that surprised me he came back qu- quicker than we thought and said you know what this is this business is uh, is ready to move on to its next stage and and calling it Vortex is so all of our business service businesses are actually called Vortex now they're all integrated. They're all on the same platform, which is I'm very proud of. That's we see a lot of companies where they do operate under that structure, and in some cases it works. But I think having uh, having them all integrated and having them on one system and seeing in bleeding orange is is important to developing the right kind of story. And, and I think a story that we're building. I grew up in a very traditional family family business, and you had your name on the building and. 
Delano was a was a proud moment to see on your trucks and everything else. We we've we still think about Vortex that way. We only think we think about it a little differently. Less we try to build as much of a team environment as we can. You know, we're not perfect all the time, but we have a, a corporate culture that's built on this premise of winning big. We actually trademarked it. So we we win big as our we hired a group to come in and help us sort of capture and harness who we are. You know, we're all pretty hard charging guys and gals that want to win. So winning big was, is what came out of that. And we, we, you see it around our office and you see it on a lot of our, you'll see it when you go to our website. It's a big part of who we are. I love it. All right. I want to get back to culture, but I, I want to real quick on 2016. So you kind of meet with regions bank and you kind of have the epiphany that we need to raise new money. Obviously, you had worked at a private equity-backed company before, but I think this is important for a lot of people to hear. You had, let's just call it bootstrapped your way to $40 million in revenue. That's, that's a feat of its own. But what mattered to you? Like, How did you start this process? Did you already know who you were going to go to? Did you interview lots of people? Like, What mattered? And ultimately, how did you make the decision to work with who you worked with? You know, I think I think that there's a couple of a couple of important like a couple of important quotes that I've buying or building are obviously you know we looked back and said you know could we do this again could we could we go out and bootstrap it in ways where we're taking the right kind of work or working with the right partners and the reality is we're in a municipal pay cycle and at some point you start to create a, a situation where it would have it would have been hard for us. To raise the capital and do the things that we were going to do on our own, we probably could have done it. But I, you know, knowing what I know now, I didn't. I, I grew up in a, an environment where I, I didn't. I didn't really understand what kind of money was out there. If I knew, if I knew what, if I knew what I knew now, I, I don't know. I, you know, at the end of the day, we found essentially exactly what we were looking for in Platform, who was who was a, a company that invested fifty one forty nine. They weren't institutionally backed. I didn't want a company that had a, a huge amount of, of a pension fund. And I want, it was, the platform's a lot like a family office. And I had met them in a, actually, when my family's business was for sale to try to help them out. And they gave me a, gave me a pitch that, that stayed with me. And then when I started, when, when Regions said, you know, you should look, we went and talked to a few different, private equity groups and Brad Morgan at platform. I called him up and said, Hey, I think we're, I think we're really moving this train pretty fast and your structure makes sense. And there's an opportunity for some of us here that I don't, I didn't think we thought we would have as quickly as we might. And uh, I think we can get this thing to, I think we have a path to get this thing to four or $500 million in the next seven or eight years and, or 10 years. And, he believed in us, and it was a it was a much quicker and very painless process. You know, diligence is relative, right? But I didn't want the traditional the traditional group in the sense that that it became. You know, we're still we're still needed to be nimble. Platformers allowed us to do that and go out and build a great business. We uh, we still have a lot to accomplish to get to those numbers, but you know, we're at least more than halfway there, so that's good. Was there something, and if the answer's like it's private, you can't share, but like, was there something that stood out? You know, you said that they weren't institutional, which I can guess means they didn't come with all these extra red tape things that institutions now require. But is there a certain way they're structured? You kind of mentioned perpetual funding that was just like, yeah, this resonated with me a lot more than your typical term sheet. Yeah, I think their I think their plan with all their businesses to hold on to them as long as long as it takes, and if they're growing a great business, you know they. they one thing I liked about them is they hadn't sold a lot of businesses. They their plan was to to hold and and build great companies, and you know by being there really isn't a charter and a fund, and they have to move it in seven to ten years, and if you know it's not it's perpetual, and we raised dead for the deal and, and it, you know, great opportunity to come in and, and in a structure like that, you can, you can pivot and you can do some things. It's not all about, you're not in a 
sales mode the minute you walk in day one. You know, you're building a great business the same way we were before. They also offered a lot of things that I hadn't hadn't been around. You know, they, they have a great culture and they had the ability to support all the things that I needed as a guy who understood the business but didn't understand everything I needed to understand about business. They've taught me a lot about that in a way that I don't know that I deal with the, with the leadership there. In some cases, in smaller groups, you're dealing with an analyst or somebody that isn't necessarily a guy that's going to or, or gal that's going to help you understand. It's just a number. So they, they are partners, and it's been a learning experience, you know, for me being a being a bull sometimes, but at the same time, really allowing us to do a lot of the things that have made this company or make this company a great company. Yeah. When you, when you team up with them and call it 2016, 2017, obviously you kind of mentioned you had a goal of getting to, you know, half a billion in revenue and they're a perpetual kind of fund. It's not a blank check, but is, is the relationship kind of, Hey, as long as, you know, these are deal accretive opportunities and, and we're investing in good opportunities. We're going to continue to be there because you've bought a lot over the last six years since you were with them. Like, how, how does that, how does that relationship look? You call them whenever a new deal comes in and say, do you like it or do you not? Or how does it work? You know, our, our deals are all in since 2000, you know, since we started, since our first acquisition of Quadex. You know, we've never hired an investment banker. We've never used any outside any outside resources. It's all been industry related, arm's length. In some cases, customers, people that we've we've had the opportunity to work with for a period of time. So we, we really understand the companies that we're buying a little differently than than most. But the business we acquired in Germany, and I've known the owner of that business since since 2011 or 2012. We've been around each other for a long time. Same for, for the U.S. I and mean, Backvision was one of Quadex's oldest customers. We were able to build, which is really the riskiest side of diligence, right? Like you said before, the culture and the personalities and the people that are going to carry these businesses forward. That, that's, that's the hardest part of buying a deal. You know, you got to look for traps and you got to look for the financial side. But if they don't if they're going to come in and not fit in, into your culture and who you are, and, and and our model is to take people from those businesses and really ramp them up and put them in larger positions or different positions or get the most out of what makes them great at what they do. That's integration is, like I said before, I'm proud of the fact that they're called Vortex. I see companies all the time when they have you know, there's nine different names on a card. So... Once we know that that's a reality, and once once we can have that connectivity with a seller that's just like you know this is the right thing, and we want you to be on the cap table, we want you to reinvest, and we want you to be a part of what we're doing going forward. And that's when we have that conversation, and and you know you always got to make the numbers work. And early on, one of you know one of the biggest, if I could go back and write a, and it, like you said, like. Cash flow the business, or how you went to regions. You know, th- those are all things that I would do some combination of. I don't know if I would do it exactly the same, but I would. But we still, when we started in in 2016, we brought a general counsel on. Number platform, like you're, you're a small company. You, why do you need? Well, we've never hired a banker because I I hired an, a, a guy that understood M and A and came on as a partner and and helped us. You know, really intimately got involved in all these deals. We hired a a young financial guy. Uh, out of the Naval Academy that came on and did all of our modeling. So I didn't, we had all this stuff sort of internally, and then we could evaluate the business from an industry perspective. And that was really a big, a big part of our secret sauce. And for the most part, you know, platform has helped hone in all those things and help us made the right, make the right financial decisions when we buy these companies. But we, we do Vortex, you know, as a standalone we have a lot of the infrastructure to go out and get those deals done, which has been an, another big part of our success and and platform being there to help validate that stuff is sort of the cherry on top, you know. How many businesses have you acquired since twenty sixteen? And we're you know, we've done a couple of small asset deals, but it's 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 if you include them, it's eleven companies. 
All right. Um, let's just spend some time on this and then I've got some other uh, questions and then some fun ones, but um, <laughs> nothing crazy. I just, the, the, you've met, you've mentioned integration like a lot. I can clearly see it's really important. And you kind of said on each acquisition, you kind of let that acquisition dictate how the integration might take place. Is there like a 90 day, one year playbook or, you know, something like skills that you've learned over time? I guess if somebody was listening that, that might be integrating companies and was like, man, these are some lessons that I'd never, you know, I never would have learned or things that you've learned the hard way. Like what are the top three things to integrating a company or something to that degree? Yeah, I think most of the, I think when integration gets super generic, it starts to get less, the, you know, your success rate goes down. You know, understanding the business that you're integrating, understanding the personalities, knowing who is really critical to that business is the key to integration. And then I think you take it down a notch and you look at their, you look at the tools that you use, you look at the technology, you look at the systems, you look at where they operate, you look at, there's certain businesses we've gone in and, you know, at the, we're at the first day and you find out that there's, you know, five brothers and cousins working on a crew where you find out. You know, you got to, you have to understand the, the dynamics of the business and understand how important that crew is to the revenue and how you affect, how you effectively integrate them in. And then timing is the third piece. Like, do you, you look at the first 90 days or the first six months, you know, there's death and taxes. Like there's certain things that your insurance is going to be when your insurance, when your policies run out, you're going to be on our insurance. You're not going to, we're going to bond because you know, that's just the way the liability works. The money's going to come to Houston. There's a few things that are just that are just basic things that you get out of the way. But taking them off their system and doing a huge shock to the shock to what who they are and how they operate has never been a real. So the timeline is relative. I think depending on how some guys come to us and say, "Look, I don't. I just know how to put pipe in the ground. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. We're going to go on the system immediately," and that. And, you know, that sounds easier than it is. You know, sometimes you, you sort of have to take a step back. And then there's some where we adopt, we adopt some of the things that they do because they do it so well, the way they schedule or the way that they, they look at the business. So, yeah, I think it's under, really understanding the business, understanding how the, the way that they operate affects the key people and that are critical to that business and, and really making it clear what the the things that are going to change day one are, which are really money and insurance and maybe a few other things, payroll, that kind of shit, AP. And then the last piece really being focused on, on developing the right timeline. And, you know, mo most of the size businesses where we acquire are uh, some are on a more sophisticated system, but a lot of them are on QuickBooks or on something where it's, uh, I mean, you can run, it's amazing the size business you can run on QuickBooks. QuickBooks <laughs> is a really great product. Sometimes I wish we were on QuickBooks. It can do things that are super expensive ERP can. Yeah, it's like two of the most successful technologies of all time are still Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel. Like same with I put QuickBooks in that category. There's really been it's just amazing. We still have people that don't that we, you know, we integrate this great construction tracking software and it's just like I, do, I can't, I can't, I, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to track everything on Excel. I'm like, well, you know, it's kind of doing the same thing. It's just like, it just makes me comfortable. Like, well, this is where it's got to get. But at the end of the day, you realize that that's actually one of those guys that are doing it that way are your best project managers. You know, they, they don't need a tool to make them better. They're just, they're just good at doing what they do. Do you care at all if the leaders of the businesses stay on post close is that a a deal term deal by deal or is it something that's that's important to you one way or the other it's very it's very important to us it's important in the businesses that we look at i mean in this day and age leadership and and people are critical to running a business i think one of the things we look for in acquisitions are you know how many we've, we've acquired a business uh, that we're two you know two members of that business are now running separate divisions and and have someone in you know on the on the leadership team you know dave who runs our our new jersey office and sean who runs maine and 
and we have there's more to come. You know, we, I think we have an incredible amount of talent in our business. And when we look at when we look at acquisitions, I think you know, looking at how their leadership engages with their team and how they talk about their team and who they are, you know, how they get along with their partners, all that stuff is to integration. Like, yeah, I don't, there's been, there's been a, there's been a few technologies that we've acquired to my P and in that case it was, it wasn't, it was really about the technology and less about the people. Yeah. Keeping, keeping and preserving and, and making sure that they're a right fit to, to be in, in, involved in, in what we're doing is important. All right. I just want to ask a couple questions on Europe. You've got businesses over there. This is maybe more to just, you're the first person I've had on since kind of Russia, Ukraine, Europe has started that owns business over in Europe. But have things changed? Is what we're hearing over here the same as what's actually going on over there? Like from your perspective, maybe I'll start with like, how big is the Russia situation on Europe from your view right now? I think it depends on where you are in Europe. It just determines how you know how you're how you're affected. But I think everyone is affected in some in some way. Germany, where our office is, Germany is definitely you know, they've changed. They had a, a policy for since the end of World War II. They're scaling their military up, and and you know the cost of fuel and the cost of gas and stainless steel, which is a big part of our robotics business, is up. 250% over the last couple of weeks because a third of it comes out of the Ukraine, you know, and then there's supply and there's, you know, the ability, you know, yeah, 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 the price is up, but the price, the price is up because of supply and demand. It's not still a capitalist country. It's definitely, you know, and I think, you know, the way that, the way that countries like Poland and Hungary and border, bordering countries are dealing with it are, are different than, Germany, Germany is still, and, and the areas of Germany that we operate are still a long way away from from the Ukraine. I, I don't. I, I think it's affecting them more at the gas pump, and you know, in, in in terms of the cost of food and things that really do affect our employees and people, and are affecting us here. So, I think a lo- in a lot of in, in you know, in a lot of similar ways that we're affected, Germany's being affected now. Yeah, having to figure out. We talked the whole episode about commercial. Does does your technology do well in like residential? Like, is it scalable to your typical single family home with a slab leak or something like that? Or is it is it? Are you focused more on commercial? Yeah, we have we have uh, we sell private label products. We have robotics technology that work in residential and big a big part of our business is in-house lining where you're you're lining vertical stacks or you're 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 basically lining up to the wax flange of a of a structure yeah that's there's a huge a huge residential side to our business especially especially up to the property line or up to the clean out but yeah you you call up a plumber you know chances are they have a pacote miller or they have some type of of trenchless or repipe product or Coatings product. There's a there's a good chance we might be we might be in that cycle somewhere. All right, I'm going to end it on three things that you kind of brought up that I think are important. It's a lot of fun to talk about building big businesses and and everything else, but you just kind of said three things that I think a lot of people should think about, and they're lighthearted. But you said doers are the lifeblood of a business. Executives have it easy. What did you mean by that? Besides what you said, it's never so true in our than in our industry. I mean, we have guys going into sewer pipes. Our executive team is built on guys that and gals that you know. Some vortex was their first job to people that started businesses in this space to people in HR that came from totally different worlds. And everybody puts a, you know one hundred and ten percent of this business, but the guy, but the people in the field. Especially during COVID, that sacrifice and and live in hotels and that's the lifeblood of our business. We don't we don't have a business without those guys and gals. Is there anything I I, I have to ask this question because when I think of some of what you do, I, I think of micro and like dirty jobs and and he's on this American campaign that 
we need more people to be doing this and we need it to be attractive again and for people to want to get into this industry. Is labor tight? Like, is there anything you're seeing or things that you think about when you're like, man, we need so many more people coming in or, or how do you think about labor maybe over the next 20 years, especially in your industry? I mean, there's, there's an info, there should be an infomercial out there. I mean, there, there's kids that are going to get their masters in teaching. <laughs> don't really understand how much money they can make. And, and I think in certain industries in this world, and this is kind of, you know, it's, it's fairly recession proof. You know, we're dealing with capital funds that are pretty hard to access once they're allocated and we're dealing with a real need and labor is just a labor is just really challenging. I, mean, I don't think anyone in our industry is, I think everybody in our industry has dealt with with uh, shortages and trying to find people and what could be done if they had enough people, um, how to train, how to consolidate. And we have a huge gap from the age of 13 to the age of 18 where no young men or women are being trained. There's no vocational schools anymore. There's no way to get them educated to understand, you know, I think there's people that go to school because they think I was probably one of them. I, I shouldn't have gone to college. It wasn't <laughs> meaningful. I, I would love old Miss, but go um, Ole Miss, baby. Day, yeah. National champs. You, you sit there and you think about, um, the things that, and, and how, uh, and how we drive someone to, you know, some people shouldn't own a house. Some people shouldn't have a credit card. Some people shouldn't go to college. And, and, and labor, labor is a uh, labor is going to continue to be a challenge until we figure out how to educate people on what exists out there. But going into a sewer, you know, which a lot of people that work in these offices and back to the doers, like they don't ever have to get into a sewer. I mean, we don't. I like going out and seeing our guys in the field and walking job sites, but it's a tough job. But at the end of the day, you know, these a lot of them are creating a good life for their family and working hard doing it. And, but back to the labor side, it's just, it's until we, until we can sort of re restructure, you know, it's going to be, how, how do you, you know, airplane mechanics or truck drivers. I think there's, we need 80,000 truck drivers in this country to support, you know, supply chain isn't always, isn't all, all about, in availability, it's about getting. There's one load. There's one driver for every 80 loads available right now. How do you get stuff from point A to point B? And we dealt with it during COVID. We couldn't get containers here. You know, we had to. We had some real, a real strain. Real, you know, it, that affected one container not getting here could affect five or six different businesses in the way that pipe is removed. You know, and and I don't know that it's. Is it because we're short staff? Is it because people? don't want to work. I don't, I don't know. So I, I commend you. And again, it's been another theme throughout the deal and you don't have to give a, a, a really long answer, but family is obviously critical to you. You mentioned your wife being a huge part of your story. You mentioned your parents and just kind of the lineage, your, your great grandfather that started this company. What is it about your world that makes family so important? Like, what, why, why is family so important to you? I think, you know, g growing up in a family where, you know, our, our business, the business was a big part of, you know, I remember when we were kids, my cousins and my, and my brothers and sisters, we would play Volano brothers, you know, like that was like our, our game. <laughs> We'd like yell at each other and say things, say like, not that, not that that's in my family, but, no, but, but my uncles and my, my father and, and, and everybody, um, they were all, you know, the, the business was, a was a big part of how we grew up, but being around family is, you know, family was a huge part of, of how I grew, how, how big Italian Sunday dinners in New York. And, and, you know, we were up there a couple of weeks ago and we went and got lemon ice and, you know, the, the lady that I saw when I was last time I saw her was probably 13. She remembered me and remembered my grandmother's name. But growing up in a place like that and, and really understanding how important they built a great business and it was generational. But when you know when you start a business on your own, you really you really have to. I mean, be, being being the wife of an entrepreneur is probably as hard as 
as hard a job as anybody, you know, and coming home and not being able to explain why you did something or not being able to explain like, look, it's just the way it is right now. And I'll, it's going to work, you know, and, and having faith and, and having faith in some of those decisions and we've been married for 20 years and she's been there for, she's been a huge supporter and the, and I don't know, I don't know if I'd, uh, if we would be as successful as we are without her or me. I love it, man. Well, it's a constant theme that most entrepreneurs, it's not easy and it takes an army of support. So, all right, man, this has been awesome. You built a hell of a company and I'm hoping to meet you in person someday. I'm going to be down in Houston here pretty soon, probably in August. So maybe we'll get together. Yeah, man. Let me know. Love to. All right, dude. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.